The talk tonight is about walking the spiritual path lightly and with ease. A lot of us understand that the metaphor for the heart opening or the heart and mind opening um, can be seen as a flower opening. And part of the reason that the journey, the spiritual journey, can feel um, long and arduous rather than light and full of ease is that part of the opening process to life as it is includes opening to this vast range of joy and sorrow that's possible as our karma unfolds. So this range of joy and sorrow in the world is vast. And as we walk the spiritual path, um, I think that we all discover that there are times when we get impatient and we want to pull our petals open, or at least pull others' petals open. (laughs) Uh, But we usually discover that um, pulling the petals open kills the flower. You know, and it's, it's like we get stuck, we stop the journey. It can be sometimes confusing as we drop in deeper to a more non-conceptual practice. Um, we lose track sometimes that we're not trying to get rid of pleasure and pain to awaken, but we're really trying to open to pleasure and pain, to life as it is so that our ability to experience pleasure and pain actually increases. As our spiritual journey unfolds, as the inner flower unfolds, the practice usually becomes more and more immeasurable and unfathomable. So if we're truly dropping into more um, non-conceptual reality, then we're closer to the truth of how things are. And you can just imagine that how wordless that is, truly, how mysterious it is, and then how unfathomable it really is. We can try to put into words glimpses of the truth, but we could never put them really into words. We just, we just point to it. So when we're trying to fathom where we are, and usually during this point in a three-month retreat for the three-month people, we're in a kind of free fall. You know, and it, it, and it becomes kind of, it will feel urgent sometimes to get a sense of where we are, but you can't. You know, it's, and it, it's, it, <laughs> it can be um, difficult, especially when we're comparing when we're comparing even one sitting with another, or one retreat with another, or last week with this week, or, you know, so many people say, you know, I'm less mindful now than at the beginning of the retreat. And then, of course, there are some people who are gradually moving toward leaving, the six-weekers. And you can feel also this movement toward trying to guess, you know, well, how did it go, really? You know, we start, you know, making these attempts at honest self-assessment, but usually it's loaded with self-judgment. So, of course, you can hear uh, teachers say, um, please try not to judge your practice. It is truly unfathomable. It's truly mysterious the way each of us unfold. I mean, it... (laughs) kind of teaching here now 21 years, I'm more and more amazed how unique this process is for everyone. Not only unique, but so fragile and so indestructible. Albert Einstein said that the most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the source of all true science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder, 
and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. To know what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty which our dull facilities can comprehend. Only in their primitive forms, this knowledge, this feeling, is the center of true experience. So how can we measure that through words? A movement to less suffering, a movement to the heart opening, uh, means that we just have this uh, trust in showing up for our moment-to-moment experience and knowing that's all that we need to do. It's just to keep showing up what's unfolding for us, not the person next to us, not the person three seats behind us, or whatever, but really what's unfolding for us. It's a unique karma, a unique empty phenomena rolling on and on. So the less conceptual, the less we know where we are. I have a great-niece who just had a baby last week. Uh, So that means I'm a great, great aunt. (laughs) And I went uh, to see her yesterday and the day before. Uh, And it's interesting to live into this new role because it feels like I've just entered a fairy tale where I get to be this magical great-great-aunt that just kind of comes in and can give a real deep, pure blessing. So I had this great time just holding her. And every once in a while she would open her eyes. And you know, holding a little baby's hand, there's just nothing like it. You know, this welcoming this being into this world. And she kept looking at me like, (laughs) it's just that look. It's just this total mystery, you know. How did this happen? Who are you? You know. (laughs) We were both feeling the same thing. (laughs) And of course, there's other family around in these events. Uh, so I have another great niece that I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, the one who wanted more and more and more of uh, Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. So I uh, was spending time two days with her. So one um, afternoon, her friend, who's four years old, uh, and her, and then another friend of mine and I, we went out for a walk in the rain. Of the rainy afternoon that we had. Uh, and we went for quite a walk, and my great niece got very tired, so she had to go up on my friend's shoulders. And we were just about to kind of, we were just rambling. I don't know the area around this house very well. So we could see this fountain down in the distance. Uh, and we were sort of undecided, and then suddenly the little four-year-old went, <laughs> it was like there was no stopping him. Um, and actually, my, my niece, my great-niece, looked at me because I was trying to kind of veer us the other way, and he, she said, you know, sometimes he's a pain. <laughs> it was just, it's so funny to hear these things coming out of a three-year-old. So anyway, to make a long story short, she's up on uh, (laughs) this friend's shoulders, and we're looking at the fountain, and she has the most profound spiritual experience. You know, she couldn't put it into words, and there was no way she could let me know it in words, but I could just see it in her eyes, and it was like her, it was like beyond smiling. You know, she, and she just was going, (gasps) (gasps) you know, 
and it was just such awe, and she, she couldn't put it into words. And she was just like, it's so beautiful. But, you know, it was like she couldn't, she couldn't say it. And I think that sometimes we think spirituality doesn't start till when? Seven? You know, 11, 15, 21. It's like, but it, that's not true. You know, it's like each moment of consciousness through birth, death, birth, death, birth, life, death, it's possible to see clearly, to really deeply connect. So I could see that um, she was very blissed out, but then she was very shaken, which, you know, happens when we deeply connect sometimes. It's like we have that profound touching of the truth or touching the interconnectedness connectedness, sometimes we feel that utter joy, but then sometimes there's that shaken feeling, if we really understand something about impermanence or unreliability or um, insubstantiality of self. So I could feel that she needed something, but I didn't quite know what she needed. So I decided, well, what do you do at a fountain? You know, we make wishes, right? So I dug in my pocket and I found just two coins. So each of them had a coin. And when she threw hers in, she was very thoughtful. And she said, I wish my mom was here right now. And, I, and at first I thought, oh, she's feeling um, so shaken. She wants her mom. But then when she went back up on my back and I was walking, it was like, oh, She wanted to share that with someone she loved so deeply. So this talk is really about that sense of when we connect so deeply and also the importance of a spiritual friend, someone someone to share this um, understanding that we have that makes life worth living. So if we deeply connect with the truth of any moment, whether it's from the doorway of interconnectedness, love, or through the doorway of understanding the truth, say the three characteristics of existence, there's a purity. You know, we can touch this deeply within ourselves on a retreat. We can touch it with a chipmunk. We can touch it with another person. And that opening is just like a flower opening. And in that touching the truth, it feels wonderful, but we're also very vulnerable. That's why it's so difficult to maintain it, because if life was just all pleasure, of course, it would be easy to maintain it, but it isn't. So when we feel that vulnerability, sometimes we can feel gratitude. The gratitude is a result of being that open and, and touching the truth so deeply. And I think of gratitude as the most profound spiritual emotion that we can have as a human being. Sometimes we appreciate the joy, sometimes we feel the gratitude, but other times we hold on. You know, it's so interesting, it's like we we clamp down because we think we have to hold on to that um, truth. And yet it's the moment when we start to cling or hold on that it disappears. So one way to see that is that, um, you know, it's like why touch the truth if we're going to lose it? You know, why love when it hurts so much to lose it? And yet that is really what we're doing here over and over and over again is being willing to touch the truth or to touch the truth of interconnectedness and then lose it again and then touch into it again. It's like this contact separation, contact separation on a level that's so vulnerable. You know, it's amazing how powerful and sometimes wonderful but agonizing it can be.
when my sister died last year, in the last few days uh, before she died, we would have very short conversations on the phone. You know, she had so little energy. There were so few words. And yet the less words and the shorter the conversations, it was actually that the connection felt so deep and tangible. And basically it came down to, (laughs) I love you, goodbye. It was like, that was it. And the two days before she died, it was like there was still attachment in our voices and still the pain there of the leaving. But actually we had worked so hard, it was like we didn't do the karmic cleansing with words, but we both worked so hard, it felt like at that moment it was pure. Like that last day, we both let go, it was time, and it was, but the words were the same. I love you. Goodbye. You know, but there was no clinging in it. And uh, it was quite (laughs) powerful. It was a blessing. That's what we're doing each moment. I love you. Goodbye. I love you. Goodbye. No wonder it's so (laughs) hard. I mean, really. You know, it's like it's very important to realize it because in terms of trusting how the practice unfolds, if we start to, you know, clamp down when the flower in us, when we close off, it's because we can't withstand that process. And that's okay. If we detach without connecting to each moment's experience or with another, we usually close off to the poignancy of life passing, of moments changing. There's a French-Lithuanian poet, Oscar Malos, who wrote, When he lacks sorrow and tears, man is dry, poor, and accursed. And when we're just detaching, and we're afraid of the pain in this world, and we're not connecting, there is a way in which it's dry, and we truly are accursed. We're not feeling the pain. So there is a kind of um, poignancy in the way things are. And as we all encourage over and over, it's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, uh, when we're, we're just willing to face this truth, again, of love, of interconnectedness, of connecting, as well as letting go and detaching. One of the things that amazes me about us humans is that we tend to attack ourselves or others for being vulnerable. It's like it's so unacceptable to have that more moist heart versus the dry heart. But as the, f- the journey unfolds, what I notice the most about all of us doing this practice is that the heart gradually softens and it does become more moist. My aunt um, finally got into a nursing home uh, at 96. She did get accepted and approved. Uh, but it, it's taken a lot of effort you know, for me to pull this off with um, a kind of extreme dysfunctional family and dysfunctional nursing home uh, situation. Uh, and it was very interesting for me because I really wanted to be able to have a roof on over her head. Yeah, I mean, this felt like I I needed to put effort in, but I would notice how when things were looking like they weren't going to work out, how hard it was to stay balanced. 
And it's like that with our practice. It's like we put all this effort in, even if it's effortless. <laughs> you know, we're just being here requires a certain amount of effort. And yet to have that sense of it being okay, just the way that it's unfolding, that it is okay, that it's unfathomable, that we don't really have control how it is, can be difficult the more we do try. So I could see by the night before um, the move was supposed to happen, the great move, um, I was starting to get tight because I started to have phone calls and it started to look like it might not happen. And this manager of this place was away for a few days and the details were getting incredibly fouled up. I mean, it was just like unbelievable. Uh, So I called him about 10 at night (laughs) and it seemed like all of his stress of a lifetime came out at me on the phone for some reason. You know, (laughs) man, was he angry. Woo! You know, and (laughs) I just sort of like, I kept trying to, you know, be the, you know, great communicator and I wasn't taking it personally and I was just really great about it on the phone and you know, you know, I finally agreed to all the things, and we finally arranged it. And I got off the phone, and I, I went up to bed because it, <laughs> it was late. And I laid down, and I just couldn't let it go. You know, this, it was so interesting. And I was noticing how in my mind, I would just start to say to myself, I don't know him from Adam. You know, and that was really, I was just trying to talk myself out of feeling hurt by his anger. And I would just, I would try to drop in my body and just feel how I was feeling. And then these thoughts would come, who is he? <laughs> who's, he, to, he who's he to make me feel bad? I'm not going to feel bad, you know? And it was just back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> uh, you know, for like 10 or 15 minutes, just avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And finally it was like, he hurt my feelings. You know, and I don't know him from Adam, you know, and you can imagine how it is when we really love people and know them well, how it affects us. This person, I had to see him once, you know, more, you know, the day I moved her, but it's really not a deep connection, you know. (laughs) It probably won't be (laughs) a deep connection. And it's just so interesting to see how vulnerable our hearts really are. And as we move toward the change, like of some people leaving and some people coming in, you'll start to see this kind of anxiety build up for some of us. (laughs) Most everybody will go through these periods in this week of just that anxiety around the change. It's not even that someone's yelling at us. But we might see a suitcase and someone leaving and it just it's so evocative it's so poignant and it's so important just to remember it's okay to just say oh i'm afraid oh ooh that hurts because we are connected with each other even if i don't know this man i am connected with him and i i don't want to feel separate from him Until a uh, third stage of enlightenment, we do get caught. You know, we are fools. <laughs> over and over we get caught in believing, wanting, or we get caught in believing anger or hurt. And I mentioned this once before <laughs> the last talk, but I really think it's important not to take ourselves too seriously in this process of the heart opening, the heart's release. it makes us be able, or it allows us to be able to walk the spiritual path more lightly. This quotation is from a book called Expecting Adam, which I described before, but it's about this woman who had a child with Down syndrome. And basically, this this child became her spiritual friend. This child completely transformed not only her life, but her husband's life. Uh, She had been um, educated at Harvard. All of this makes 
Adam react in ways that are utterly different from the Harvard responses I had learned to venerate. While I was trying unsuccessfully to understand his pronunciation of his new friend's name, for example, Adam got laughing so hard at my wildly inaccurate guesses that he could hardly breathe. Now, there are many moments when I can tell Adam is terribly frustrated by not being able to speak clearly. It bothers him a lot. There are many times when I see the pain on his face as he struggles to communicate. These moments are intensely painful for me as well, because I know that if I were in his situation, comprehending everything around me and yet being unable to express myself, I'd want to slit my wrists. But just at the moment when Adam's frustration is most intense and I expect to see him fall into rage or despair, something changes. Or rather, Adam changes something. I don't know how to describe this except that he appears to make a a conscious choice to see the situation as ridiculous. He'll take a deep breath as though he is letting the frustration slide off his shoulders and begin to laugh. This is not the laughter of an idiot. It is the laughter of a person who chooses to see humor in his own discouragement. And to me, it is not only intelligent, but wise. In fact, I think it is wisdom in its purest form. Adam laughs at himself every day. He laughs at his own bizarre pronunciation, at the inaccurate attempts others make to understand him, at his strenuous efforts to communicate with them. He laughs as though he is being tickled over every inch of his body, finding his own plight, the plight that for me, the Harvard graduate, would be simply awful, awfully funny. Try not to forget. For some reason, it's not on the lists. Humor. (laughs) My theory is that it's just so understood. You know, it's so assumed that we know that it's important. You know, it's just... Especially, you know, look at us all like slow walking. You know, I mean, if there's no humor with it, you know. (laughs) So being on um, Cape Cod visiting my family, I uh, spent summers there when I was, since I was five, until mm, I moved to Maine in 73. Uh, but it's, it's sort of a deep, beloved um, spiritual friend, the beach, the, and the beaches at Cape Cod. And it feels like one of the places I learned about um, being utterly simple and utterly insignificant. So I revisited this place that I... Uh, feel like I learned something about being present with ease uh, yesterday. Or was it the day before? Who knows? Anyway, (laughs) Uh, it's wonderful to revisit this simplicity. And we can learn it at a beach, of course. We can learn it on a retreat. Uh, But that sense of just letting the waves, you know, the sand, the stones, the birds, the sky, you know, it's just sort of, they all just sing themselves, or they're just being themselves. And somehow, us humans, we find it so difficult to be connected with it, to to be part of it, and not be so self-centered. You know, to not think that we are the center of the universe. When you listen to our thoughts, it just sounds so much like, we are the center of the universe. Uh, and it's wonderful when we get to have these times when we feel so insignificant. It's like I, I saw the seagull just walking along the shore, and it felt so immensely more important 
than anything. And of course the uh, ocean and the sand and the shoreline, you know, that teaches us something so important about nothing staying the same. You know, each footprint disappears. Uh, We don't always get that immediate feedback on a wooden floor on the grass as we're walking. But that's really how it is. This is a wonderful little passage from a woman who spent um, a long time out on an island off of Cape Cod. Off, It's called Monomoy. And she said that the emptiness fills me. Everything we normally think of as the passage of time transforms now into endlessness. The sandscape is never the same, changing as though eternity, not erosion, were the force at work here. I can go back and forth across the island, and still the moving sands and the lush, monotonous beach grass can deceive me, convincing me that I am at the same exact spot in which I have been found on some other yesterday afternoon. And then as I begin again to walk from foreshore to backshore, from drift line to mud flap, the landscape opens like frontier I have never before conquered. If we're aware of change, impermanence, then we can become aware of this sense of timelessness of really feeling the utter insignificance or emptiness of our moments, and that it's okay, that in fact it's such a relief, it's such a joy to really know that each footstep does disappear. We totally connect. It's like each footstep that we put down rings through the universe. You're really there, you're everywhere, And then it's gone. Again, it's that hello, goodbye. Oh, I love you, goodbye. So how do we trust the glimpses? You know, what is it that allows us to um, keep going? through the times when we forget about the truth of interconnectedness. And to me, the, the most important thing, other than our own faith and trust in the process, is really connecting with a spiritual friend. And a spiritual friend is, is meant to nurture the birth of our spirit. And not only nurture the birth of our spirit, but really nurture its life. And that that's also part of walking the path lightly that it really gets heavy without the sharing, without our experience being shared and seen, witnessed, and responded to. There's a wonderful um, way that I think this is expressed uh, by a man who wrote a book called Bless Me Ultima. And his name is Rudolfo Anaya. And he met... uh, um, Karandera, a great healer, when he was seven years old, she moved into his house. And to me, she de- he describes this, this sense of spiritual connection. She took my hand, and I felt the power of a whirlwind sweep around me. Her eyes swept the surrounding hills, and through them I saw, for the first time, the wild beauty of our hills and the magic of the green river. My nostrils quivered as I felt the song of the mockingbirds and the drone of the grasshoppers mingle with the pulse of the earth. The four directions of the Alano met in me, and the white sun shone on my soul. The granules of sand at my feet and the sun and the sky above me seemed to dissolve into one strange, complete being. A cry came to my throat, and I wanted to shout it and run in the beauty I had 
I had found. Through her eyes, he saw for the first time. You know, this is often the power of a spiritual friend. But any way that we get to understand and share is truly what gives life meaning. You know, otherwise it's so impossible, it's so unbearable. The dukkha times. <laughs> the sukha times aren't so unbearable. A lot of you have heard about Deepama, a teacher that um, came here several times from Calcutta. And for me, she was uh, one of my root gurus. You know, she just like, um, I just totally connected with her. And when I knew she, she was going to die, when I um, was saying goodbye to her from here the last time I had seen her, and I looked at her, with that look, you know, <laughs> of like, oh, <laughs> I don't want you to go. This is the last time. And she said, I'll always be with you. And she has. You know, I might forget to tune in to her, but it's the truth. And when I come in here even to give a talk, it's like I feel her with me. You know, it's just that powerful, a connection. And that's really the, the power of a real deep spiritual friend, and that you know they're always there. And then you incorporate that in being always there for your own experience and for others. It's like you become a spiritual friend to others, as others have been that for you. It's just really the most important thing in life. Now, the Buddha said it was 100% of the spiritual life is spiritual friendship. You know, not 99, you know, 100. And sometimes we meet spiritual friends, you know, it might be once, one, a few moments, it might be just in different circumstances. So it doesn't mean that we have to have this great root guru like Deepama. I find I... I just meet people that are really helpful for me on my way. And it can be very short. The month before my dad was died, um, he was at Mass General, and I was commuting from here by day and late at night. Um, and for some reason, when I was on the Massachusetts Turnpike, you know, and you go through several toll booths on the way out and in, I kept having the same people. And it was just like, after a while they said, you know, would say, how's your dad? You know, and I was just getting amazed at that kind of karma. And one time, just I was just in this very vulnerable place, and, and this man just looked at me and he said, how's your dad? And I started sobbing. <laughs> and the traffic started to back up. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> he was just so kind, you know, and these are spiritual friends, you know, these are moments of true connection that are really important. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a spiritual friend has to be some you know, great big thing. It's these moments when somebody is kind and we receive their kindness. And the Buddha said that the two most rare and precious type of human beings in this world are someone who shows kindness and someone who appreciates that kindness shown to them. The two most rare and precious kinds of human beings, one who shows kindness and one who receives it and appreciates it. And truly, again, this is a lifeline for us this world. It's like, a, it's the only way we get through the sometimes impossibility feeling or overwhelm of how life is, which is this range of joy and sorrow and how to understand it. I had another 
<coughs> experience um, during that time, which is when my dad was in the hospital, he wasn't exactly the type of person to communicate what was really going on for him or what he needed. Uh, and so when it came to being asked about like life support or being intubated and just all these very, as we all know, difficult decisions toward the end of someone's life, um, he would ask for everything. And I knew he didn't want any of it. You know, so I would be in the room and somebody would come in and, you know, this would go on the record and I knew, you know, it was going to end up like he didn't want to end up, you know, for years in a nursing home, a vegetable, you know, and every time we visited my stepmother who was in a nursing home, um, he would say, please don't let this happen to me. Please don't let this happen to me. And then I'm in this room listening to him, asking for it, you know, and I'd be flabbergasted in just what to do. And it would feel impossible. It would go down on the record. Um, So this is a teaching hospital, and residents come and go. And there was this one doctor, you know, this sort of, you know, this great guy would sort of whiz through once in a while and whiz out. Uh, So he came by one day. And I said, you know, he was with all the residents, and I said, do you happen to notice any inconsistency between what my father is saying, you know, and what he's acting like? You know, because everything he would, you know, even tests or, you know, anything that he would ask for when they would come in the room to do it, he wouldn't let them do. You know, it was amazing, just this continual inconsistency. Uh, So they said yes, and they said, well, even if I don't have a witness, can I have one more conversation with my dad and see if he can, if I, I don't want this to come out of my own, my own pain. It's like we can't make decisions out of our own pain. It really has to be that somebody has the right to make these decisions. Um, so I sat, you know, I was in the room and I said, Dad, we have to have this conversation. And we, we just didn't have these type of conversations. And I, it was... <laughs> I want to be, he said, I want to be kept alive as long as I'm alive. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just a sort of down-to-earth, common-sense kind of guy. And I'm like, but Dad, you know, I said, does this mean, you know, you want to end up in a nursing home if you're going to be kept in life support? And he's like, he'd get really mad. No. And I'm like, okay. You know, so I went out to the, the you know, out to the hallway, and this doctor that was so kind, um, <laughs> came by, and he looked at me, and he put his arm around me, and he said, I don't want you to have to bear this burden anymore, alone. I don't want you to have to bear this burden anymore alone. He said, I'll take total responsibility for it. You know, and he just did it. These are moments in our lives uh, that are so important. It was like, it wasn't only just gratitude, but just this kind of calm and ease and appreciation of a spiritual friend. You know, he was really kind in a very impossible-seeming situation. Dukkha is an impossible situation, yeah? And we have to learn the kindness within us from sometimes a kindness without us. Gratefulness. There's a kind of um, irrepressible purity of the spiritual journey. And being that gratitude is one of the deepest spiritual emotions, I wanted to share with you um, something that happened at the end of one of the young adult retreats we teach here. And we have a wonderful circle at the end of that retreat. So it's, it's 60 American teenagers who come here and do a retreat for five days. And it, it's really a privilege to go through that process with them. It's a privilege, of course, to do this process with you. It's like, I feel like the luckiest person in the world to be here with you.
And so we put this large bell in the middle of this um, tile floor down there, a really big one. And then there's flowers all around. And at the time of year that we have the retreat, there are peonies in bloom outside. So these big, lush, pink, just waterfalls of petals are all around in vases uh, and candles. And we sit in a circle. And there's a lot of silence. And we ask people to just, no pressure if they want to come up and say something. But the idea is that they come up in the middle. They're surrounded by everybody. And what, after whatever they do, they ring the gong. And the gong is a real, you know, pulling card to get them up there. It's like they really like to ring the gong. <laughs> so some people just come up and ring the gong. And this one young man, a uh, young adult, had, uh, he was probably 15, and it was his first retreat. And he had experienced a lot of difficulty, a lot of resistance. And he had been touched. You know, he had opened up some. Something really affected him. And I could see how he was sitting there, and I could see how he wanted to be able to come up and say something, but that he couldn't put it into words. You know, it, so much of, you know, if you look at the course of a day, and even if you look at how much you get to report to a teacher, there's so much you don't share. You know, it, there is so much that we don't express. It is so... Um, vast and awesome. And he wanted to come up and do something, and I could see he was struggling to know what to do. So he came up, and he started very slowly and mindfully collecting peony petals in his hands. And he just had a whole bunch of them, and then he walked very mindfully up to the bell, and he put them all in the bell. And then he started sobbing. And then he rang the bell and sat down. So I'd like to end with a um, poem by Li Po, one of my favorite Chinese poets who loves to talk about um, drinking wine as a metaphor for enlightenment. (laughs) So when he talks about being drunk, it's not really about being that drunk, although Lipo drinks a lot. It's true. (laughs) But in the poetry, a lot of it is an expression of enlightenment, uh, but he does get drunk a lot. So this is called Drinking Alone on a Spring Day. (laughs) He's a great poet. (laughs) Drinking Alone on a Spring Day. East wind fans clear, warm air through shoreline trees ablaze with spring color. And sunlight shimmers in green grasses falling blossoms scattering into flight. Lone cloud returning to empty mountains, birds returning, each to its own home. In all of this, nothing is without refuge. I alone have nowhere in life to turn. Forever drunk, I face rock-born moon and sing for wildflower sights and smells. When you let go of control, when you're able to really, at times, be able to say I love you and goodbye to your experience, you really don't need any outer refuge. You know, we realize there's nothing to hold on to. And we realize we can learn to really bring this wisdom, compassion, and flow with the truth of life. And live with great well-being and ease. And you know that don't forget this uh, practice is about happiness and peace. Let's sit for a minute.
May our practice continue to be boundless and immeasurable. and mysterious. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.